الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So inshallah ta'ala today is the last day of the classes in the month of Ramadan and inshallah ta'ala the classes will resume uh, after uh, Eid bi'ithnillah ta'ala the schedule, as always, is published on the Kalima website, so I'm not going to make a mistake and tell you what the date is in case I get it wrong. But inshallah, it is on the website for all those who uh, who want to check. Before we continue with the discussion of Al-Majaz, I wanted to dip into something which is an, an, an explanation of uh, al-waraqat or a critique of al-waraqat by one of the shiyukh. And I was looking for this for a while until I found it. I was actually given a similar book by the same sheikh but not exactly what I was looking for and I finally found this one. Now. To understand this, this is a little bit interesting. We know that Al-Imam Al-Juwaini, Imam Al-Haramain, uh, was one of the major Imams of the Ash'ari Aqeedah. He was not like a, a person who inadvertently, you know, was Ash'ari for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. This is an Imam that every single person after him used his beliefs to justify their misguidance in aqidah and he was not like he was not a small figure in their belief system and he was a major figure in their belief system and that makes you wonder how much of his belief ended up in al-waraqat now the standard reply to that from the majority of scholars is not very much. They will say, look, Al-Waraqat is a small book. It deals with a few issues of Usul al-Fiqh. It's not very complex. And yes, he, you know, like bits and pieces, you know, like Al-Majaz we're going to talk about. There are some things in there. But, you know, there is nothing overt in there that is like that jumps out at you that this is something, you know, where he really propagated his belief I wanted to give you the other side of the story or the other opinion in this and this sheikh he did a critique of al-waraqat specifically focusing on the issues of aqidah and his position was that he almost didn't go over any line in al-waraqat except that he linked it to the aqidah of al-juwaini now realistically this leads us to an interesting question which is how true is that because he virtually did not leave a single line maybe definitely every other line before he stopped and said this is nothing but ilm al-kalam this is nothing but ilm al-kalam this is nothing but ilm al-kalam 
يعني هي ونت ثرو الورقات از ذو الورقات زبوخا عشري عقيده يعني فروم بيجينينج تو اند هي كريتيك ذا هول ثينج هي اكشلي هيمسلف ذا ذا اوثر اوف ذيس كريتيك اكسبلينز the answer which would kind of give you the clue as to why this happens when he says that and i'll just paraphrase what he says he says that he is reading the book with a critical eye he's reading the book without husn al-dhan without thinking good of the author without trying to understand his speech in the best possible way without making excuses for him he is his intention is to show you every possible link to the author's belief and so he himself says that he critiques sentences if a person from ahlus sunnah were to write them he would not have had any criticism of them at all but because they were written by a person with this particular belief he clearly shows you why it is that these link back to the belief that he had so this is a little bit of a, a caveat or a little bit of a warning that not everything i'm going to read to you i entirely agree with i think at times there is a there are um some uh, areas where he really if anyone else had said that he would not have blamed them for it but just because it was al-juwaini who said it and he links it back to his his belief as you will see having said that the reason i want to read this to you is i want you guys to appreciate a couple of things first of all i want you to appreciate how much a person's belief affects what they write and the next time you know you pick up a book and say oh well you know it doesn't matter he was yeah he was a little bit you know he was a little bit dodgy but never mind you know his book inshallah will benefit every book has benefit you will understand just how much a person's belief comes through in what they write and the second thing i want you to do is i want you to kind of develop this critical eye because it's not it, it's not a bad thing to develop to be able to see through what people write and to see kind of what the ultimate aim behind that writing might be why did al-juwaini choose a certain definition what i mean for example he chose a valid definition but why did he choose that definition and then you look at his belief and you realize that if he were to have chosen another definition it would have put him in a problem in terms of what he believed about allah what he believed about allah's names and attributes it would have put him into a problem so in some ways he chose certain things certain definitions in his book which the definitions are not wrong but he chose them because if he had chosen a slightly different definition he would have put himself in a big problem in relation to what he what he believed i also want you guys to develop the habit of not always believing the uh, the refutation either you know because sometimes you read a refutation you have to understand just because a person is writing a refutation a very honorable noble person person of knowledge doesn't mean that everything they write is also valid and this is something that the the, the youth and the young the, yani the shabab in general need to understand 
uh, sometimes we get a bit excited when someone writes a critique of someone else and then we get like you know everything in the critique has to be 100% correct and that means that this you know there is no value in this book and we should throw it away from the beginning and it, we have to also understand that these critiques are, are themselves open to criticism and open to question and open to you asking really did you know are you stretching a little bit here or did he really say what he said so it's a good exercise and uh, it's a very beneficial book he really goes through a lot of detail in what Al-Juwaini uh, believes and I've just highlighted a few um, a few points to sort of take you through it the first point uh, he really goes into is this issue of whether or not Al-Juwaini repented the standard biography of uh, Al-Juwaini is that Al-Juwaini repented from his belief at the end of his life and that he returned to the belief of Ahl-Sunnah and he warned the people against this belief that he used to hold uh, the author here Hafizahullah he goes you know, to great lengths to explain that Al-Juwaini did not repent and what actually happened was he did what every Ash'ari does he went from being an Ash'ari who twists the Sifat to an Ash'ari who says Allahu A'lam and this is called a Tafweed a Tafweed because the Ash'ari are of two groups one group they twist the Sifat from their original meaning and they twist the ayat of the Quran from their original meaning and the second group they are those people we call al-mufawwidah and basically what they do is they say that there is no way to know what the Quran means about Allah's names and attributes and we just should say Allahu alam and the scholars among them Shaykh al-Islam and many others actually classify tafweed to be worse than the first methodology because of what it implies the first methodology is that they come to the the, the sifa of Allah the attribute of Allah in the Quran and they say his hand means his power and his rising means conquering and whatever the second methodology is every time they come across Allah's names and attributes in the Quran they just say Allahu A'lam we don't know what it means and as I said many of the scholars said this is worse than the first opinion because it entails saying that the majority of the Quran is incomprehensible and that the Prophet ﷺ and the companions did not understand the meaning of the Quran and they make the Quran like Alif Lam Mim and they make the Sifat like Alif Lam Mim nobody knows their meaning except Allah and so in reality they actually cut out a third of the Quran or a half of the Quran they just cut it out it has no meaning to them it may as well be like 
Chinese, you know, it has, it's just incomprehensible. And that is a more dangerous and a more evil opinion than even the first opinion they have, which is evil enough. And we know that the standard life cycle of an Ash'ari is that towards the end of their life they will become Mufawwib. Because they will realize that they have not even one shred of evidence for this twisting of ayat that they do. And when people debate with them, they realize this. And they will confess, okay, yeah, you're right. Actually, we have no way out of what you, know, what you said. We have no evidence for it at all. It completely contradicts everything that the Prophet ﷺ said, everything that the companions believed, everything that the imams of Islam believed. We agree with you. It's complete, you know, it's batil. It's falsehood. So what they do is, instead of leaving their belief, they just join group number two and say, Allahu A'lam, we don't know what anything means anymore. And the author here claims that this is what happened to Al-Juwaini. That yes, Al-Juwaini said, I have repented from my belief. My belief was false. My belief was wrong. My belief was haram for the people to read and learn and study and understand. Everyone agrees that Al-Juwaini said this. But people differ when he says, I have gone back to the belief of Ahl sunnah what does he actually mean, I've gone back to the belief of Ahl sunnah The author goes at length to show that what Al-Juwaini meant by saying, I've gone back to the belief of Ahl sunnah is just saying Allahu A'lam about all of the names and attributes of Allah. And in other words, he went from being Ash'ari type A to Ash'ari type B. And not that he went from being Ash'ari to being upon the Sunnah from Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. But in fact, he went from type A to type B. And that is usually what happens with many of those people. And we also have to remember that even Abu Hassan al Ash'ari, when he repented, and he repented from his belief, he returned to the belief of Ahl Sunnah in general that there has to be this word in general. Because when you have you know, been exposed to that kind of poison over such a long period of time, there is no doubt that very few people ever come back to the sunnah completely. Especially in the early days of repenting. Usually what happens is they kind of, you know, end up wandering a little bit you know like they kind of like yes they repented but they still don't have the right belief in Qadr because you have to understand that the Ash'aris did, do not only have issues in the names and attributes there is no pillar from the pillars of Iman except that the Ash'aris have problems in it including Qadr uh, including uh, belief in Risala in the Prophets including the names and attributes of Allah Azzawajal. you name it they have issues in it and all of their issues stem from their basic principle that the intellect is superior to revelation. And so, when Abu Hassan repented, yes, he repented, but he still ended up with the after effects of that belief. You know, he didn't quite come completely to the belief of Ahl Sunnah. And so, in some ways, the same might be said for Al Juwaini. Yes, he repented, and he is to be, you know, to be. Um, you know, we, we, we would speak highly of that. You know, we would, we would uh, say that's something very praiseworthy, that he repented, that he recognized that his methodology was wrong. 
But it is the reality of it is he did not come back to the belief of the companions. And he, what he did is he tried to come back to the belief of the companions and ended up, you know, sort of somewhere in the middle. Not quite, he didn't quite meet the transition. So that is something interesting, you know, as a different perspective. Because the standard sort of opinion that you get, especially from the scholars of Uswal al-Fiqh, because, uh, and, and we used to get this when we stu used, to, we used to study from, in fiqh, we used to study a book called Bidayatul Mujtahid. And uh, the author of Bidayatul Mujtahid uh, in fiqh, it's a book of comparative fiqh. Uh, many of the scholars considered him to be an apostate. because he made statements about Allah Azza wa Jal that took him out of Islam. And from those who considered him to be an apostate was Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimullah. Now, if you ever listen to, you know, like a, a scholar of fiqh explain this book, they rapidly skip that bit. And it comes into, you know, the author said, rahimahullah ta'ala, you know, and, and they, they skip over that bit. Because nobody really wants to, you know, like, nobody wants to take a hatchet to the author of the book they are teaching for, for four years, you know, like, they just kind of gloss over it, you know, and they'll say, oh, there's ikhtilaf about whether he disbelieved or not, and it's not, you know, it's not clear, and, you know, it's maybe he repented, and people will always look at the, you know, the author that they're teaching in a good light, generally. But when you ask the scholars of Aqidah who have no attachment to the book, and they have no attachment to the author or to the book, you get a different story. Uh, so, you know, this book was a book where, really, the correct answer is that it was a book of a non-Muslim. It's a book of fiqh by a person who, through his statements and actions, left Islam. Uh, and it's a very good book, it's a very, very beneficial book, but it was a book of, you know, the reality was it was a book of somebody who had according to the stronger opinion, left Islam. Obviously, that's not what we're dealing with here. But what we're dealing with here is, again, the scholars of Usul al-Fiqh who teach this book, Al-Waraqat, they tend to gloss over the, the nastier details of the belief of Al-Juwaini. Because what they will do is they will turn around and say, oh, yeah, you know, he repented, rahimahullah, and the book has a lot of benefit in it. And inshallah, we look at it in a good... You know, they look at it in a very positive light. And the scholars of Aqidah may even look at it in a very negative light because they're not interested in the benefit of a soul that is contained. They're interested in cleaning the wound, you know, getting rid of all of the false beliefs that are in there. And so they would look at it with a very negative light. And you will hear them say, you know, this man did not repent and he did not change. And the reality is he just became from an Ash'ari to an Ash'ari. And his, his book is full of this belief. And you have to understand that each one is speaking with their own perspective because of what they're looking to do. One of them is looking from the point of view of Usul al-Fiqh and one of them is looking at the point of view of, of Aqidah. And reality is that we should do both. You know, we look at the book from the point of view of Usul al-Fiqh and I chose this book very deliberately. I wanted a book that is... I mean, the book is well established. The book is taught by Sheikh Ibn Thaymeen, taught the book, Rahimullah. Uh, uh, there are many, many of the shiuch, many of the shiuch, I'm not mistaken, 
you know, there are so many, I mean, Sheikh Sa'ad al-Shetri, so many have explanations of, of, of the scholars of uh, Ahl al-Sunnah. They explained this book and they relied upon this book to teach their students. But I wanted to teach you a book that isn't, you know, 100% pure, so that you get the habit of how to approach it. And you understand that as well as studying the book from an usul point of view, we also need to study the book from an aqidah point of view as well. So that we understand maybe some of the areas where the, uh, where the, uh, the author may have slipped in some of his beliefs or may have tried to propagate some of his beliefs. Or at least we can ask why the author chose certain things over others why did he leave out certain things from the book and was any of that to do with his uh, his belief okay so i'm going to go through some of the points uh, that he raises uh, for these things So the first thing that he has a major issue, it's not the first thing, but the first thing I want to, I, I highlighted some. And he, one of the ones that there is a major issue with is this issue of avan. This issue of differentiating between al-ilm and avan and al-shak. So he says, first of all, there was no need to define knowledge. And Al-Juwayni's attempt to define knowledge is classic behavior of the mutakallimin. They will, and, and to be fair, I totally agree with this point, that he defines and then he gets himself in such a muddle because he has to define everything. And if you listen to it last time, it's, it was quite, it was a little bit tough. You know, because he started with, what is the difference between fiqh and knowledge? And then what is knowledge? And then what is ignorance? And then what is necessary knowledge and what is necessity? And then what are the, the ways of, you know, what are the senses? And then what is al-ilm al-muktasab? You know, knowledge which is gained. And then what is a dalil? And then what is, you know, this issue of, because they, this issue they have like, what is fikr? What is thought? What is reflection? What is dhan? What is the dalil? And he went through defining a hundred things that, you know, he didn't need to define. But he defined them because this is any one of the things that they, you know, they do. They define the definition and then they define the definition of the definition and then they define the definition of the definition of the definition. And uh, most of it is, is of very little benefit. Because ultimately you ask yourself when you're reading these books, what is the outcome? What is the thamara? What is the action? What is the benefit? What is the fruit? of what you've given me. Okay, you know, I should learn something that should change my actions. It should make me closer to Allah. It should make me more able to understand the Quran. But if you spend a long time defining, a, you know, what is knowledge, reality, knowledge doesn't need to be defined. Because knowledge is known. Knowledge is the opposite of ignorance. And knowledge, when Allah Azza wa praised it in the Quran, He did not distinguish between 
and he or he did not start distinguish between these different types of knowledge and then this and then define what is this and what is this because some things are clearly understood in speech and therefore by defining them you get yourself tied up in in knots but the first issue he has uh, the first issue I want to uh, to read to you is the statement of Al-Juwaini وَالْعِلْمُ مَعْرِفَةُ الْمَعْلُومِ عَلَى مَا هُوَ بِهِ Knowledge means knowing that which is known. Okay. That sounds like ilm al-kalam to me. Uh, because uh, you've got a definition which is so pointless to be absolutely yani, almost worthless. Yani. Like, ilm knowledge is knowing that which is known in th in the way that it should be but the issue interesting issue here is that he doesn't i mean he has a go at him for that but then he has a go at him for something else and that is his use of the word ma'rifa to describe knowledge so i mean just to go into it a little bit we have different verbs in arabic for knowledge okay so we have the verb alima from which ilm comes from and we have the verb arafa from which the word ma'rifa comes from so he says here uh, that the reason he chose the word ma'rifa and I'll try and get you the whole sentence is that according to the people of Kalam and by the people of Kalam we don't just mean the Ash'aris but all of those who followed this methodology Fiqh all of, all of Fiqh is an issue of Van not an issue of Yaqeen because of their issue of uh, Al-Ahad, Al-Hadith Al-Ahad so because of their ahadith al-ahad, you know, their belief that these single narrations don't constitute a proof in Islam and they, you know, they, they are subject to the intellect and so on. For this reason, uh, they consider that the majority of Islam or the majority of Islamic law is guesswork. And because it's guesswork, it's subject to what? It's subject to their concept of the intellect. Because they don't use the intellect in something which they consider to be certain. So if it's like mutawatir or whatever, and they don't use their intellect if they consider it to be certain. But they have a principle that if something is van, if something is based on a guess, then you're allowed to use your intellect to overrule it and what they do is by defining knowledge in this way they allow it to be the case that most forms of knowledge or most forms of fiqh according to them are guesswork and therefore are subject to the intellect and are not subject to following the rules of the Quran and the Sunnah 
The Sheikh, he says, because someone might say, he says, someone might say, what is the issue with saying that fiqh is vanni, that fiqh is mostly based on guesswork? Like, didn't we say that in the last class? That a lot of masail in fiqh are based on guesswork. He said, so what is the issue with this? He says, the majority of fiqh is from the is is considered to be within the category of certainty, not within the category of a guess. For example, the obligation of the prayer. Does anyone with regard to the obligation of the prayer doubt it? Does anyone have any like, you know, is there 1% doubt over whether there is any obligation to pray five times a day? The obligation of the zakah. The qibla for the Muslims is the Kaaba. And so on. So he said, if you actually look at Islam, the overwhelming majority of the important rules in Islam are based on certainty, not based on doubt. Or based on a guess. And the number of issues in which the scholars differed over is actually small compared to the number of issues that they agreed upon. I think perhaps the word number might be wrong here. And I don't think he, he doesn't actually mention the word number. Maybe I'm, I'm mistranslating it. But I think the word number here might be wrong because probably the number of issues in which there is a disagreement is a lot. But the relative importance, in other words, what percentage of the important bits of Islam are based on certainty and what percentage of the, imp of the important bits of Islam are based on doubt? Let's take the issue of Aqidah, for example. How many issues in Aqidah did the companions actually differ over? So you can say it's Mimbab al-Vani, and it's, like it's, a, it's based on a guess. How many issues did they actually differ over? Probably you can count them on one hand or two hands. Max. Out of all of the issues of belief, the companions might have differed over five or six. And all of the rest, they agreed upon. They differed over whether the Prophet ﷺ saw Allah, or whether he saw him in a dream, or whether he just saw light. They differed over... For example, the meaning of the shin in the ayah, Yawma yukshafu an saq, on the day the shin will be uncovered. There are like a handful of very, very small issues that the companions differed over. Even on the topic of fiqh, how much did the companions actually differ on the major issues in fiqh? Virtually none at all. Virtually nothing at all. Very, very few differences. What happened later on is, yes, we got a lot of new masail, a lot of new things happened to us that we didn't know about before, you know, like a lot of new experiences. And, you know, there were some differences among the scholars. As we became further away from the companions, we kind of uh, became more, you know, more in need of looking at things uh, sort of... Uh, we perhaps lost some of the, you know, the, the knowledge that, that was there and the scholars had to kind of make their best judgment and stuff like that. But if you look at the companions, 
Do you think the companions prayed like 10 different ways like the people pray today? Not, not really. There may have been some minor differences between them. But I do not think you would have found the companions praying like the way that the Hanafiya and the Shafi'iyya and the Maliki and the Hanabila and he, uh, pray today. Like in this completely different, each one with their own different position for the hands and their different position for raising the hands and their different position on every... I, you know, this, was not, this did not exist among the companions. And so there is a certain truth to what he says. That what Al-Juwaini is trying to propagate to you is that the majority of Islam is based on avan, is based on making an educated guess. When the reality is that the majority of Islam is based on yaqeen. And that has to be the truth. Because Allah Azza wa Jal cannot reveal to us it's not befitting to reveal to us the most perfect and complete religion and then have 99% of that religion based on guesswork. As Al-Juwaini would have you believe. Instead, the majority of Islam is based on certainty. And, and I think this is a really beneficial point for all of you because a lot of people ask this. There's so much ikhtilaf in Islam. There's so much differing. You know, there's so many. We don't even know how to pray. We don't even know. We so Go back to the companions and ask yourself, did that differing exist among them? So that differing is the outcome of our own sins and our own disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's not the outcome of what Allah revealed to this ummah. Because the majority of what Allah revealed was certain and based on certainty and that's why even in the madhahib even in the four madhahib with the exception of one or two issues all four pray in a way that is acceptable to all of the other th three in other words the shafi'iya and the malikiya and the hanabila agree that the way the hanafis pray is valid they may say it's not the sunnah but they will still say it is valid. The Hanafiya and the Malikiya and the Shafi'iya agree that the way the Hanbalis pray is valid. With the exception of one or two minor issues, the recitation of Surah Al-Fatiha according to the Hanafis and some, you know, some small, you know, the, the Hanafis saying there's no need to uh, pause when you sit after the sajda. But generally, the vast majority of them agree that all of those ways are valid in their basic, they cover the basic principles of the salah. So what is that telling you? That's telling you that even in this issue where there is so many, so many different, so much of a difference of opinion, they still agree on the majority of the rulings of the prayer. We still all agree that there is a raka'ah, that in the raka'ah you say Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim and then you rise up saying Sami Allahu liman hamida Rabbana walaka alhamd and then you make sajda and you say Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la this is all agreed upon so yeah we might differ over whether we put our hands on our chest or our stomach and we might differ over whether we should raise our hands before the ruku' or after the ruku' and whether we should point our finger in the tashahud but all of the Muslims agree on the most fundamental parts of the Salah. And if you go back to the companions, you get even more agreement. 
And you get the companions agreeing on raising the hands. You get the companions on agreeing on putting the hands on the chest. You get like so you get even more agreement. But even among the madahib today, there is still a huge amount of agreement in these issues of fiqh. And so the first issue that he has a big a big problem with here is this issue of al juwaini kind of basically giving you the idea. He doesn't say it outright, but giving you the idea that the majority of Islam is based on Avvan. Are there parts of Islam that are based on Avvan? No doubt. We have said this before. There is no doubt that there exists such a thing as Yaqeen, certainty, and there exists such a thing as Van, an educated guess, and there exists such a thing as Shek, doubt. There is no like, I mean, we don't, that's like, you know, stating that the sun rises in the sky. And we know that there are areas of Islam in which we are, we have to use our best guess. And we gave an ayah. In dhanna an yuqima hudud Allah. There is no harm on them. فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِمَا يَتَرَاجَعَ There is no harm on them to get back together. In dhanna, if they guess that they will be able to stick to the limits of Allah. So Allah has commanded us when we have guesswork to make an educated guess and do our best. And there are issues in fiqh where there are issues of disagreements where we have to use our best guess and we don't reach the level of yaqeen. But it's worth noting that for the belief of al-Juwaini to be valid, he has to get out of knowledge and into dhan. Because when he's in the area of knowledge, they have little room for maneuver. They have less room. They still use their brains to override the Quran and the Sunnah. But they have a lot less room to maneuver as to where they say, well, you know, these sifat of Allah, they're actually all vanniya anyway. They're all based on your, you know, educated guess. And, you know, my guess is as good as yours. And my intellect is as good as yours. And therefore, I have the right to say what I say. And, and so on. You see where it's going here. So really... They, the only way they can justify their belief is by throwing the majority of Islam into guesswork and taking it out of knowledge and certainty because knowledge and certainty gives them very little room to maneuver and guesswork gives them a lot of room to claim their belief is valid because my guess is, is, is as valid as your guess. The next thing he has a problem with, and it's still in the issue of this, uh, these definitions, is why he takes aqidah out of usul al-fiqh. So al-Juwaini, before this, he defines fiqh. And he says fiqh is ma'rifatul ahkam al-shari'iyah allati tariquha al-ijtihad. Knowing the rulings of uh, the Sharia through the means of ijtihad. He said, hold on a minute, uh, Juwaini. Why did you add this last part that the, mean, the means of which is ijtihad? He said, wallahi, you only added this so that you could take aqidah out of usul al-fiqh. Because aqidah has no ijtihad in it, generally. And there is no, we don't have the concept of um, 
you know, people like sort of looking at the Dalil and saying like which one is like. So when he defined fiqh in this way, he kind of defined it in a valid way, but in such a way that he can take the topic of aqidah out completely. And he can basically make fiqh completely devoid of anything to do with belief. And the author who is critiquing him says, in reality, the ahkam of Islam, the rulings of Islam, are rulings to do with prayer, and rulings to do with aqidah, and rulings to do with nikah, and rulings to do with trade, and rulings to do with everything. Why have you taken aqidah out and said it has nothing to do with fiqh? Why have you said that fiqh only relates to these issues of you know, the halal and the haram as it relates to the prayer and the zakah and marriage and whatever? Why have you said that the halal and the haram of what we should believe about Allah is excluded from this? I think this one's a bit of a 50-50 one. I think uh, the definition is, is, uh, is okay, but coming from who it comes from, it's worth bearing in mind. It's worth just like bearing in mind that in reality, as we've said to you, usulul fiqh is used in extracting rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah. Those rulings could be rulings related to belief, rulings related to prayer, rulings related to marriage, rulings related to trade, or rulings related to anything else. There is no evidence for limiting it to a certain set of rulings. And again, the reason they want to limit it to a certain set of rulings is so that they can keep their belief with them and then they can, you know, they can, uh, they can sort of separate the two. And until this day, this is very commonly used by some of the, you know, the deviant groups. Uh, so, for example, they will say, we are Hanafi in fiqh. And you say, okay. So what is your belief? They say, no, 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 we're not, we're not Hanafi in belief. We don't follow the belief of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. You say, okay, but you just told me he's Imam Al-Azam, the greatest Imam, the most knowledgeable, the most, you know, the one who met some of the Sahaba. You've given me a long list of reasons why you should follow him. And then you've told me you don't follow him in belief. Why? Because his belief contradicts their belief. Because his belief means dropping all of the things that they do, the grave worship and the, you know, the innovations that they do and the shirk that they do. If they follow the belief of Abu Hanifa, they would have to leave all of those things. Rejecting uh, al-kalam and all of these other things. So what they do is they say, no, no, actually, you know, like, keep fiqh on one side and keep akhidah on the other. Yeah. Like, uh, in belief, we follow this imam. And in tasawwuf, we follow this imam. And in Fiqh, we follow this imam. And he, what they do is they distill the knowledges down into very, very separate categories and then say we follow this imam in this and this imam in this and this imam in this. And they insinuate that Imam Abu Hanifa was ignorant about aqidah. When in fact Imam Abu Hanifa's aqidah, with the exception of this issue of irja, was the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah. He spoke about against Ilm al-Kalam, he affirmed the Sifat, he, you know, he, he, his belief was the belief of Ahl-Sunnah with the exception of the well-known issue of Iman going up and down, 
which is, you know, we will come to in Aqeedah Tahawiyah, you know, this issue of Iman going up and down. Generally, his Aqeedah was the Aqeedah of Ahl Sunnah. And that's why, of course, they don't follow him in it. Because they would then have to change their belief system. So what they like to do is to keep things compartmentalized. And so when they give definitions for fiqh, they make sure they give a definition that means that we cannot take belief from, for example, Abu Hanifa. By giving a definition of fiqh that excludes belief and then saying that he is our imam in fiqh and therefore we don't take belief from him. You say, if he is your imam in fiqh, then why would you not take, if he is so knowledgeable about the prayer and about the hajj and about the zakah, why would you not take belief about Allah from him? They say, no. Because if we did this, we would be like you. So you can, you can understand a little bit about this issue. That's why I highlighted this definition. Because even though I think it's a bit harsh on him, like in the sense that he really, you know, like Joanne didn't really say that, but he it's worth noting that that is what people do. And that is what many of these groups do is that they will compartmentalize these types of knowledge to an extent that they will say, this is my sheikh in fiqh and I don't take from him anything but fiqh. And this is my sheikh in belief and I don't take from him anything but belief. Because the problem is the sheikh in belief is shafi'i. So now they have an even bigger problem. The sheikh who's teaching you belief is shafi'i. And you're telling people that you can't be Shafi'i and that the Shafi'iyah don't pray correctly and they don't do, the, you know, so now your belief, your Imam in belief is, you know, he is our Imam in belief and he is our Imam in fiqh and he is our Imam in Sufism, Tasawwuf and he is our Imam in Tazkiyatun Nafs and they really like cut these things into, into totally separate categories whereby you cannot listen to the Sheikh in anything other than that one particular topic. So according to them, Aqeedah has no, uh, according to them, Aqeedah has no Ijtihad in it. And so when he mentions Ijtihad here, he excludes Aqeedah. Because according to them, Aqeedah has no Ijtihad. According to Ahl Sunnah, no. There is, uh, you use, I mean, you study, you study Aqeedah like you study Fiqh. I mean, you go to the text, you extract it from the text, you compare it to what the Prophet ﷺ said and did, uh, whereas according to the Ashaira, they would make the argument that there is no room for, uh, or there is no possibility to have anything which is less than certain on the topic of Aqeedah. And there is no room for making effort, there is no room for studying, there is no room for extracting Aqeedah from the Quran and the Sunnah, it can only be from what they consider to be Qat'iyah, which means removing all of the ahadith that talk about Aqeedah because most of them are not mutawatir and these guys will only take Aqeedah from a mutawatir hadith. In fact, even a mutawatir hadith, they're not always that reliable on, but in theory, their belief is they will only take Aqeedah from a mutawatir hadith. Uh, and they will not take it from a hadith which is a had. They will not take it from a hadith which has a few chains only. They will only take it from a hadith that has many, many, many chains. And um, because they believe that their aqidah has no room for searching for the truth and looking for the truth in it, it has to be, you know, 
an absolute fixed, uh, fixed thing. So this is another point that he raises. Okay. Okay, the next one that I highlighted. A little bit of an explanation regarding Al-Kalam. Because Al-Juwaini got a bit of, sometimes he gets a bit of praise for not defining speech in the way that the Ash'aris define it. So the author wants to take away any hope of anything praiseworthy from Al-Juwaini. So what he does is, he explains something important. And that is that the Ash'aira went through two very distinct phases. The first phase they went through is from Abul Hassan al-Ash'ari up to al-Juwaini, any before al-Juwaini. And that is that they, Abul Hassan formed his madhab in order to run away from the Mu'tazila. He was Mu'tazili. And the Mu'tazila, um, are another group from, from the Mutakallimin, but they're worse. And so he wanted to run away from the beliefs of the Mu'tazila, and so he formed the Ash'ari beliefs, trying to get away from the beliefs of the Mu'tazila. And the beliefs of the Mu'tazila are much more extreme than the beliefs of the, the Ash'aris. For example, the Mu'tazila only affirm a handful of attributes. Whereas the Ash'aira affirm all of the attributes except the attributes of actions. Like they, don't, they don't affirm that Allah speaks or rises or, and they don't, they don't affirm actions for Allah. That Allah speaks or Allah rises or Allah descends or Allah gets angry or, and they don't affirm these for Allah. But they affirmed most of the sifat and many of the sifat. The Mu'tazila only affirmed, if I'm not mistaken, seven attributes for Allah and all of the other attributes of Allah they rejected so we get it that Abul Hassan runs away from the Mu'tazila and instead of stopping at Ahl Sunnah he ends up going somewhere else and he forms the Ash'ari creed and belief very similar to it is the Maturidi belief two are very very similar up until at the time of Al-Juwaini the Ash'aira are following Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari in his belief. Running away from the Mu'tazila and you know, generally being closer to Ahl sunnah and you know, even though they have issues. But they're moving away from the belief of the Mu'tazila. Al-Juwaini starts another trend which is going back to the belief of the Mu'tazila. So Al-Juwaini is, according to the scholars of Aqidah, one of the first Ash'aris to move back towards the belief of the Mu'tazila and to actually abandon the, the Ash'ari belief of Abu'l-Hasan 
and move back towards the Mu'tazili belief. Not completely, but to move like in the direction of the Mu'tazila. And so they go back to affirming only seven attributes and so on. Al-Juwayni was one of the first people and one of the main forces, driving forces, in moving the Ash'aris back towards the, back towards the beliefs of the Mu'tazila. So now we want to see when he defined speech the way he defined it, did he define speech in that way? And we said, MashaAllah, he didn't define it like the Ash'aris define it. He defined it properly. But was he just justifying his movement back towards the, back towards the Mu'tazila? So this is an interesting uh, issue. So, this issue now is uh, what do the Ash'aris say about uh, Al-Kalam? They say that Allah speaks with a speech which is internal. And they say that Allah speaks with a speech that is completely internal. Like somebody saying words in their heart. You know, like if you were to sit and just, you know, replay some words in your mind, like these internal thoughts, this is what the Ash'aris say is the speech of Allah. And it is something, kalamun nafsi, it is something that Allah speaks to Himself. Allah talks to Himself. And He does not, according to them, speak with any words and therefore in their opinion in their opinion the meaning of the speech of Allah is only the meanings of the words and that the, and that is why the, the position of the Ashairah is that the Quran its meaning comes from Allah but its words come from the Prophet ﷺ or from Jibreel, according to a difference of opinion among them. They do not believe the Qur'an in the form that we read came from Allah. But they believe that the meaning came from Allah and that the, because that's what they believe kalam is. That kalam is nothing but internal meanings that are found within the self. And in reality, this is not called kalam. And it's not called speech. In the last five seconds, did I speak to you? You know, according to the Ash'aris, I just, I said a whole monologue in my heart, you know, like. But it's not considered to be speech. You know, for example, can you imagine if you had somebody in a coma and you rushed to their family and you said, he started speaking. And they go there and he's like, completely still. He said, you said he started speaking. He said, yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, it's registering on his brain waves. He's talking to himself in his mind. Nobody in their right mind calls this speech. But this is the position of the Ashaira. But the issue with this is, 
to say that Allah addresses somebody, and what we call a khitab, that Allah addresses someone, this also needs words. You can't address somebody with that. Okay, if we, if we just admitted, if we just like agreed with the Asha'ira for a minute, just for the sake of argument, that you can talk to yourself. As they say that Allah talks to himself and doesn't talk to anybody else. The issue we now have is, Allah addresses people. And he has a khitab, he addresses people. How do you address somebody without speaking? Or without having words, without having any letters or words that mean anything? So what is the methodology of the Mu'tazila? The methodology of the Mu'tazila is that the speech of Allah is created. The Ashairah don't say the speech of Allah is created. Someone might say, hold on a second, I heard an Ashari Imam say the speech of Allah is created. Yeah, but that's not what he means. He just, he's not able to verbalize himself properly. They believe the speech of Allah never left any being with Allah. It was internal. And that the Qur'an that we have now is created because it's not the speech of Allah in the first place. The Mu'tazila on the other hand say, no, 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 it's the speech of Allah. But the speech of Allah is created. The speech of Allah is his ruling, his hukm. Uh, and his rules and laws. This is what is meant by the speech of Allah. And it is created. So there's a difference between them. The Asha'ira believe that the speech of Allah is uncreated, but that the Quran is not the speech of Allah. In short. The Mu'tazila believe the Quran is the speech of Allah, but it is created. And the two of them come together and ultimately in believing the Quran is created. In, in reality. Although the Asha'ira, and if you... There's a very famous, I won't mention his name because I'll probably get in trouble, but there's a very famous imam of the Asha'ira. It's very, very, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. He's trying to explain to people how the Quran is both created and uncreated at the same time. So he goes through a long, you see, actually what he did, he brought his teacher. And when he brought his teacher from Mauritania or somewhere like that, his teacher made the mistake of telling people what Asha'ris really believe about the Quran. And of course, the audience had a big gasp. <gasps> Oh my God, how can you say the Qur'an is created? And uh, he, he, then the, this da'iyah, very famous da'iyah in the US, he tries to explain to his audience how it is that the Qur'an is both created and uncreated at the same time. And what he's trying to explain is that the Asha'ira believe that the origin of the Qur'an is uncreated. That the Qur'an was something that Allah spoke to himself, in himself, which was never heard by anyone at all. But that it was interpreted or translated by either by Jibreel or by the Prophet ﷺ into the words that we have today and that that translation is created. So according to them, the words of the Qur'an are created and the letters of the Qur'an are created, but the meanings of the Qur'an are uncreated according to the Asha'ira. And so that is why they very confusingly tell you that the Qur'an is both created and uncreated. 
As for the Mu'tazila, they don't have any such confusion. They just say, created from beginning to end. From the first word to the last word, all of it is created. Because according to them, the create, the kalam of Allah is makhluq. Ta'ala Allah amma yaqulun. High is Allah above what they attribute to him. So sometimes you have to be a bit careful with Al-Juwaini. That you, you actually read his book and think, MashaAllah, he's defined kalam in such a beautiful way and he's completely avoided the Ash'ari belief in kalam. He hasn't said that kalam is nafsi. He said that kalam requires a lafth. It requires a wording. Ah, yes. But bear in mind that Al-Juwaini was in the process of walking to being towards the Mu'tazila. And therefore, his rejection that kalam is nafsi, that is, kalam is, is in your own heart, is not surprising because the Mu'tazila never said that kalam is in your own heart. The Mu'tazila said that kalam is makhluq, it's created from beginning to end. And that the speech of Allah is like the speech of his creation. I mean, it's like it's, it's all just created. And therefore, the Mu'tazila have no problem defining speech as being words. Because they, they don't in the first place believe that it is uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They believe that it is created. As for the Asha'ira, they tried to run away from the Mu'tazila. And so they don't want to say it's created. So they ended up saying it's a hybrid where the meaning was originally uncreated with Allah, but then it got translated. And what we have is like, you know, the world's best translation of what Allah meant. You know, that's what they basically believe the Quran to be. So sometimes he says, and like, before you start praising Al-Juwaini for not quoting the Asha'ira in his definition of Kalam, bear in mind that he's probably quoting the Mu'tazila in their definition of Kalam. Uh, he doesn't actually quote any of those because in reality he doesn't actually tell you anything about those two beliefs. He doesn't quote what the Mu'tazila believe or what they believe. But since he was you know, moving in that direction, it's not surprising that he would have, I mean, he was already in the process of abandoning mainstream Ash'ari opinion up to that point and going back towards the belief of the Mu'tazila. And so it's not surprising that he defined kalam uh, or speech in the way that he did. Okay, next one. This is one that I am not sure about. I highlighted this one, but this one... Mm. The author ha has a great problem with Al-Juwaini speaking about Al-Ahkam At-Taklifiyya. Now, we told you there are two types of Ahkam in the Sharia. Two types of of of, uh, of rulings. So when we talked about wajib and makru and mandub and, and you know mubah and whatever, we said there are ahkam taklifiya and there are ahkam wadiya. So the author says, hold on a second. He said this this word taklifiya. He goes as far to say this is a bid'ah. This word taklifiya. Is a bid'ah. 
he said ثم إن إطلاق لفظ التكليف على الأوامر والنواهي بدعة to say that the commands of Allah a taklif is a bid'ah. Okay, what are ahkam taklifiyah? They are the wajib and the mandub, the mubah, the makruh, and the haram. Okay, those five. Those are based on what Allah commands you to do, right? Allah tells you perform the prayer, so it becomes wajib. Allah tells you wala taqrabu zina, don't come near to zina, so it is haram. Okay, up to now everyone is following. We have commands and prohibitions which tell us that something is halal or something is haram. Al-Juwaini and many others besides him, it's not fair to say only him, describe this as saying Al-Ahkam al-Taklifiyyah using the word taklif and taklif means to be, literally it means to be burdened with something. And so he's kind of saying, are you saying that the commands of Allah are burdensome? Have you used the word burdensome for the commands of Allah? Is that really appropriate to say about the commands of Allah that they are burdensome? Uh, actually, to understand this, it comes back to, is the word taklif used by Allah Azza wa Jal for anything positive or is it only used for a burden? If it's only used for a burden, then it's not right to call the commands of Allah burdensome. Like all oh, the burdensome commands and the ones that aren't burdensome. And the ones that like are a big burden for you to do and the ones that aren't. That's not really the right way to speak about the, the commands of Allah. However, his evidence for this is that Allah says, La yukallifullahu nafsan illa wus'aha. Allah does not put taklif, the same word, on a person except what they are able to do. Wallahi, yani in this I must admit I'm not convinced. For two reasons. First of all, Allah said, La yukallifullahu nafsan illa wus'aha. Allah does not burden a person except what is within their scope. By switching that around, Allah keeps the commands within a person's scope. But Allah still used the word taklif for those commands. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, many of the scholars of Islam use this word al-mukallaf the one who is has been commanded to carry out the the commands and the prohibitions so me personally i'm not i'm not convinced that this word is only used in a negative sense and until i see more research on this i'm not convinced that this is like that blameworthy you know because many of the scholars of, of Ahl sunnah use this word it's quite a standard word to use taklif uh, for the one who is mukallaf in the sharia and really uh, to say that it's speaking negatively about Allah I'm not convinced at all about that like this is one I highlighted and I'm I'm not entirely convinced how true it is but it's an interesting point to research is the word taklif ever used in, in the language of the Arabs in a positive way or it only means 
that which is burdensome. If it only means that which is burdensome, it's better for us to choose a different word for that. Rather than to say a taklifiyah. It's better that we, uh, we call it something else. We call it al-ahkam al-shar'iyah, for example. Instead of like the Islamic laws, the rulings of Islamic laws. So it's better that we call it al-ahkam al-shar'iyah if this word is only used in a negative sense. But it needs some research to tell whether it is only used in a negative sense. And the ayah he quoted, I mean, it seems to suggest to me, wallahu alam, that Allah Azza wa Jal does taklif. Because Allah says, we do not do taklif except what you're able to do. And he meaning, we do taklif in what you're able to do. And that would suggest that taklif is not always burdensome. And there is a taklif which is burdensome and there is a taklif which is not burdensome. Um, and if that's the case, then there is no harm in calling them al-ahkam al-taklifiyya. But if we call them al-ahkam al-shar'iyya, then perhaps this is true. And as for saying that taklif is a, using the word taklif is a bid'ah, then I think this is a little, uh, a little bit harsh. Because this word was used by many, many of the scholars of Ahl Sunnah in their books. And so I find that to be a little bit, I'm not sure about that. It's a little bit, uh, like they say, it requires further, it requires further research. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it just requires, it just requires uh, further uh, research. Even, even he doesn't like you saying mukallaf. Uh, the word mukallaf is the word the scholars of fiqh use for someone who is required to follow Islamic law. For example, the Muslim who has reached puberty, who is sane, and so on. You know, the, the, the people, like for example, is a two-year-old child required to follow Islamic law? No, because they are, they are not mukallaf. They are not mukallaf. He even says that this word mukallaf is also not permissible to use. And that we should use uh, uh, the word uh, al-abd, the servant. This also requires some differentiation because how do we explain the servant who is required to follow the laws of Islam and the servant who is not required to follow the laws of Islam? And this is worth, it's interesting to look at. I'm definitely not, uh, not uh, saying that what he says is wrong, but just that it needs further research before we can say this, um, we can say this for certain. Okay. Couple other points, and then I want to do the Al-Majaz for the last half an hour, inshallah. I mean, I'm only picking a few, otherwise, like, Nearly every line he has something to say about. The author, let's see what this one is. He has some criticism of the choice of Al Juwaini in dis defining the uh, wajib and haram, but we spoke about that anyway, like we clarified the issue of the fact that a person may not be punished and a person may uh, like some of these issues i've already clarified because some of them i from from the beginning i you know i agreed with so i like i clarified to them to you during the text
Okay, this is another really interesting one. Uh, his definition of delil, of evidence. Uh, those of you who know a little bit about the, uh, the, uh, the belief of the Asha'ira uh, will be familiar with this particular issue. And it's, uh, it's an interesting one. And we try and go through it uh, bit by bit. According to the Mutakallimun in general, you can only know Allah through another, through investigation. You can only know Allah through investigation. And that is why they say their famous statement that the first wajib upon the servant is to investigate and not that the first wajib is to worship Allah alone or whatever or some of them say the first thing that is wajib upon you is to doubt first you must doubt Allah and then you can believe in Allah and so what they say is you can only know Allah through investigation And what they try to do is to prove that Allah exists through logic. And this is a mistake we see a lot of people making in da'wah. And that is that they take the Ash'ari evidence or the Ash'ari argument. And it's not just the Ash'aris but the Mutakallimun in general. Their argument for the existence of Allah and that's their main da'wah tool. You know, like it's their go-to da'wah tool. Which is basically to say what they call hudus uh, al-hawadith. Uh, that every single event that happens must be created. And everything must have a... Uh, a creator or every event must have an origin and they take it all the way back until they end up at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and people like to use this in uh, in da'wah you know like they like they'll say like look you know like uh, and they'll, they'll f let people go and follow and follow and follow this argument of you know that every single event that happens and every single object that exists it has a cause and that cause has a cause, and that cause has a cause, and that ha cause has a cause. And that's why some of them call Allah the primary cause. Because they mean that, like the, that, that everything has a cause, and the cause of that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The whole reason the Ash'aris have this is not for da'wah purposes at all. But it's so that they can deny the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, they can deny the attributes of Allah and they can attribute those attributes to uh, creation. And so, what they really should have, or what, what people should say 
is that we know Allah through our fitrah, first of all. Our natural inclination to worship Allah alone. And so our knowledge of Allah is fitriyah. It's based on the fitrah. It's not based on investigation and logic. It's based on the fitrah. And then after the fitrah comes the evidence which backs up that fitrah. Which is the evidence of revelation from the prophets and the messengers. That when those prophets and messengers convey the message of Allah to us, that simply reinforces and proves to us our natural inclination to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. As Allah said, فَأَقِمْ وَجْهَكَ لِلدِّينِ حَنِيفًا فِطْرَةَ اللَّهِ الَّتِي فَطَرَ النَّاسَ عَلَيْهَا Allah said in Surah Al-Rum, ayah number 30, then, you know, bring aqim wajhak, stand facing, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in prayer, or stand in prayer, you know, to make, uh, to, with your, you know, stand with your face in prayer, making the religion for Allah alone. The fitrah of Allah that Allah made the people have. Allah made the people have this fitrah to stand and facing uh, you know stand with their faces in prayer making the religion for him alone is the fitrah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in the, the natural inclination that Allah put in the hearts of uh, his servants and the Prophet said ma min mawludin illa yuladu ala fitrah there is no child except that he is born upon the fitrah. فَأَبَوَاهُ يُهَوِّدَانَهُ أَوْ يُنَصِّرَانَهُ أَوْ يُمَجِّسَانَهُ It is his parents who make him into a Jew or a Christian or a Majusi. And it's narrated by Al-Bukhari. And for this reason, Almost every single nation, if not every single nation in the world, affirms the existence of a some kind of creator. Not because all of them use logic to, do, to derive that, but because this is something that Allah placed in the hearts of his servants naturally. And then mes the messengers came to clarify that and to, and to explain that. Now someone might say, okay, to what extent can I use logic then? And this is a question that I asked to uh, one of our shaykh, I think I asked to Sheikh Abdul Razak Al-Abbad, I said to him, Sheikh, to what extent can we use logic so that we don't end up where they ended up, but we still benefit from you know, like explaining to people who don't believe in the Quran, for example, that Allah exists. The Sheikh said, Use the logic of the Qur'an. Use what we call adillatun aqliyatun shar'iyyah. The evidence which is aqli, it's logical, but it is based inside of the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an at times addresses mankind, to addresses their uqul, addresses their logic, their intellect. Am khuliqu min ghayri shay'in am humul khaliqun? Were they created from nothing or are they themselves the creators? Or did they create the heavens and the earth? Rather, they are not certain. This is 
an adalil which is logical but it is based in the Quran and it's not based on pure logic when you use pure logic a plus B equals C often the problem is you tell everyone look the whole world works like this a plus B equals C this is the formula the problem is when you put Allah's names and attributes into that formula you end up with denial or any accusing them of being created or comparing him to his creation or whatever you end up in big big issues when you put Allah's names and attributes into that formula of a plus B equals see that you say that the whole world works like this so the reality is to avoid that use the logic of the Quran the logic which is mentioned within the Sunnah but don't use pure logic to prove that Allah exists because you will wrap yourself up in an argument that you can't get yourself out of as they did and yes they, they managed to prove it you know like you, the person goes through and says yeah wow you know this argument is watertight but when you apply that same principle to the actions of Allah in this uh, that, that affect us like bestowing mercy upon us like giving us provision and so on and so forth then you end up with a big big problem uh, so what you need to do and, and this is not really the time to go into it in a lot of detail but what the key thing is to do is to limit yourself to the logic of the Quran and the Sunnah and not to go outside of that and try to prove the existence of Allah through pure logic because through pure logic you will not first of all and you win the argument if you win it in one angle you lose it in another and that's important to realize and sometimes it comes from the misunderstanding that in da'wah we have to convert somebody and we have to like convince somebody but in reality in da'wah your job is to give the message your job is not to you know cut open their chest and take their heart and put another heart in place your job is to give them the message so you tell them you have a creator how do you know your creator look around your look at the entire world the whole of this world is an ayah is that is from the ayat of Allah that proves that Allah Azza wa Jal is your creator the sun in the sky the you know the the oxygen in the air the the, the water in the sea all of it is an ayah from the ayat of Allah Azza wa Jal that proves that you have a creator and that you have a purpose in your life and this is consistent with what the Quran says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the ayat within your own self in your own self there are so many proofs that you have a creator that deserves to be worshipped but as for this concept of let me prove to you with a mathematical formula of hudud al-hawadith that every single event must have, a must have a cause and every cause must have you know, a cause and there must be a primary cause and whatever then this is only going to lead you to problems later on it may get you a temporary result but it will not get you a long-term result and instead what will get you a long-term result is to use the methodology of the Quran address their fitrah, the natural inclination address the ayat of Allah that exist in the world for us to see that Allah has placed for us to see address revelation and prophethood because this is a major 
things. Someone may say, I don't remember my fitrah. I'm not in touch with my fitrah. I don't remember why. I don't remember being taken out from the loins of Adam and being made to testify that there is only one God. I don't remember this. Say, okay. Allah didn't require you to remember this. Allah did not say that my proof upon you is that you should remember this event. Allah said that the prophets and the messengers came to remind you about that event. That event is present as a fitrah. You don't remember, none of us remember the point where we said La ilaha illallah before we were created. And before we were brought to this world. None of us remember that event. No one says, oh yeah, I remember that. But what you have inside of you is you have a fitrah, a natural inclination which is the outcome of that event. It has left you with a feeling inside of I should worship Allah. That feeling is not what Allah requires you to accept Islam based upon. Because that's not fair to say to you, you should have this feeling and you should just, you know, like if I leave you for long enough, you'll just start worshipping Allah. That's why from the perfect justice of Allah, he sent prophets and scripture to confirm that feeling that you have, to address it and to bring it back up to the fore. Maybe it got covered over, it got buried in the sand, to bring that feeling back up out of the, you know, the cover and to make you realize that feeling again, Allah sent prophets and messengers of scripture which contain ayat and evidences and signs as well as the signs that you see around you everywhere. There's no issue with that. But as soon as someone starts talking to you about primary causes for events and every event has a cause, just cross it off. But you'll hear a lot of people talk about it and it's another topic for another day. Uh, last couple of ones I wanted to mention to you. Um, the author has a big problem with his definition of al-ilm al-daruri, knowledge by necessity. Because he says that knowledge by necessity, you've said, is hearing and seeing and smelling and whatever. But why is that knowledge by necessity? Because don't you sometimes think you've seen something but you haven't seen it? Don't you think sometimes you heard something but you didn't hear it? Don't you think sometimes, can I smell gas? But you didn't smell it. So how can we differentiate between these, this necessity, knowledge by necessity, and knowledge which is, knowledge which is, uh, is gained through, through learning? How, how do we differentiate between these two? Because you so many times, I mean, you think you saw something, you didn't see it. You think you heard something, you didn't hear it. And then why put a tawatur in that category and then not put the hadith al-ahad and this is where the author uh, takes the position that Ahlul Sunnah are of the belief that all of the authentic hadith are certain and that in fact none of them are, are, are guesswork as I told you and I stick to what I told you before that in reality Ahlul Sunnah have two opinions on this and even though the author would put it across that they only have one opinion and all of the other opinions are bid'ah, this is not true. Ahlul Sunnah have two opinions on this. From Ahlul Sunnah are those who said the authentic hadith which are ahad give you, do not give you certainty, but you must act upon them. And from them are those who said they give you certainty. Both of these opinions are the opinions of Ahlul Sunnah as long as the 
outcome is that you act upon authentic hadith in aqidah and in fiqh and in everything else that you act upon authentic hadith that is the difference between ahl sunnah and ahl bid'ah ahl sunnah say every authentic hadith on every topic you act upon and ahl bid'ah say is it ahad is it mutawatir is it this is it that if it's this i'm not going to act upon it if it's this i'm going to decide with my intellect if that they have lots of rules ahl sunnah say if it's authentic we act upon it However, among Ahl Sunnah, there are two positions, as we explained. One group of scholars said, the authentic hadith, all of them give us yaqeen, certainty, ilm. Why? Because when we study that chain and we check all of those checks and balances, it reaches us up to the level of sure knowledge. It doesn't reach the level of guesswork. Because after that study, it's reached the level of sure knowledge. And a lot of them said, no, it hasn't reached the level of sure knowledge, at least not in every case. But at the end of the day, you still have to act upon it because Allah requires you to act upon an educated guess when that is the best that you have. The author takes the position that this is not the opinion of Ahl-Sunnah. Uh, and he, you know, he, he has the right to take that. You know, that's his right to take. But in general, when you speak to the scholars of Ahl-Sunnah in general, the major scholars of our time, the Kibar ulama many of them take the position that these ahadith give you an educated guess. But they give you an educated guess that you are required to act upon. And so we can debate this issue among ourselves. We can say among Ahl-Sunnah we have some ikhtilaf. And we can debate among ourselves. Is it certain? Is it a very strong guess? Which one is it? We can debate among ourselves. As long as we both agree that we act upon every authentic hadith in aqidah and in everything else. And that is what takes us out of, uh, out of uh, this group uh, of, uh, of Ahl al-Bid'ah who said that we don't act upon them. Uh, he also said about al-Muktasab, uh, using the word Muktasab, it refers to this concept of kasb. Uh, the Ashaira, they have something called kasb. You know, the Ashaira are... Jabariya in their belief. You know the Jabariya and the Qadariya we studied last time? The Jabariya believe that, you know, you're basically a puppet on the stage. The Asha'ira are Jabariya in their belief. So they believe that we are all puppets on the stage and Allah is forcing us to do all the actions we are doing. Except that they differed from the Jabariya in one thing. And that one thing that they differed in them is called Kasp. And I'm not even going to try to explain it because they don't even explain it. They themselves don't even agree what it is. But it's this idea that you have like a tiny, tiny amount of control. Not even control. You have like a tiny something. Like a tiny undefined something which goes along with the fact that Allah is forcing you to do what you do. Uh, so they say, yeah, Allah is forcing you except for your kasp. Okay, so you see, what is kasp? They say, well, they start with lots of opinions and they themselves differ among themselves massively. Uh, so some of the scholars, some of our shiuch used to say, you cannot find two Ashari scholars who agree on what kasp is. But they are generally jabariya in their belief. They believe that uh, you are forced to do what it is that you do. And so he says when uh, Al-Juwaini says Al-Ilm Al-Muktasab Knowledge which is earned or knowledge which is gained That he means by knowledge which is gained He uses word Muktasab which from the same root as Al-Kasb 
again, I think that might be a little bit. I think if anyone else had said Muktasab, they probably would have let him let him off in, in that, uh, and some other issues. But I think Alhamdulillah, we've we've gone through the main ones uh, that I wanted to uh, to talk about. And Al-Khabar Al-Ahad, we've talked about. And some of them I've already, I, I, they're here, but I've mentioned them to you in the text already. So now we come in the last bit to uh, Al-Majaz. Just another summary for this issue of uh, Al-Kalam, just while I'm coming back to it in the book, is this very nice explanation. He said, the Mu'tazila say that speech is words without meaning. And the Asha'ira say that speech is meaning without words. And Ahl Sunnah say that speech is words and meaning. And the Mu'tazila say that speech is words with no meaning. And they don't care about the meaning. For them, the, the meaning is not what speech is. Speech is just words. And that's why they said that Allah speaks and it's created because they, they said that this Quran is full of words and you know it's all created and whatever. So they said that speech is words with no meaning. And the Asha'ira said meaning with no words. And Ahl Sunnah said words and meanings. That's a nice... Uh, explanation oh there's another thing he mentions actually on a side note um which is interesting because i couldn't find it but i was trying to find an example do you remember we were looking for those w grammatical examples before uh so we said uh isman so we said two nouns like hada zaydun this is zayd and we said a noun and a verb so he gave an example, um, oh sorry, and first we had a noun uh, and a verb, uh, we gave that example, uh, but I, I wasn't finding the example of uh, a verb and a preposition. So it didn't occur to me, but I, I, I read it in here and then it, it came back to me. The example of a verb and a preposition, like for example, lem yakum using lam, lam mim, plus the verb. Like saying, lam yaktub, he did not write, for example. So here, this is an example of a verb and a preposition. Those of you who know Arabic, it'll be easy. Those of you who don't, it's not a, I'm not going to put this in the, in the test. It's not like, it's just for your, for your benefit, yani, that there is an example. I couldn't think of a one, of an example where you had a verb and a preposition. But the example of a verb and a preposition, for example, lam yaktub, 
he didn't write, for example. And I couldn't think of an example of a noun and a preposition. Uh, but I forgot about ya, like ya zaid, ya zaidu. That's an example of a noun and a preposition. Ya zaid, o zaid, ya zaid. Ya is a preposition and zaid is a is a, a noun. So now we come to this issue of al-majaz. It's the last thing we're going to cover in this uh, module, but don't worry, we'll be going back to al-waraqat in uh, future modules, inshallah. We will finish the book, ta'ala. And you'll actually find that actually it gets better as the, as the book goes on. Uh, like in terms of this critique, we almost finished half of the critique up to here, but we didn't finish half of the book. So it gets the book gets better as it goes it goes on in some ways. Yani. But Al-Majaz, uh, the uh, the author Al-Juwaini, he div he's, he goes into another uh, differentiation between speech. So he says, in the topic of what speech is, he says, وَمِنْ وَجْهٍ آخَرٍ يَنْقَصِمُ إِلَى حَقِيقَةٍ وَالْمَجَازٍ He says that speech can be divided into haqiqa, uh, which is when the word is being used for its real meaning. Haqiqa is when the word is being used for its real meaning. For example, I saw a lion in the woods. I saw a lion in the woods. And then Al-Juwaini gives another definition. And by this definition, he actually ends up tripping himself up because this definition actually goes against what he and the rest of them believe. He says another way of defining it is to say, using a word for that which it is commonly understood as meaning. And using a word in its common understanding. And as you can see, actually, if we use this definition, his whole argument will fall apart in a moment. So what is the opposite, Ya Juwaini, of this issue of real words with real meanings? The opposite of this is one of the Masa'ib al-Kubara, one of the biggest calamities that the Asha'ira have, which they call Al-Majaz, which is... using a word for other than its common meaning or using a word in a non-standard way or using a word um, for other than its normal 
usage. And you can see where they're going with this. Because where they're going with this is that they're going to lump all of the names and attributes of Allah into Al-Majaz. An example of that, what they claim to be Al-Majaz, Muhammad is a lion. Muhammad is a lion. Or if you want to use it more like, uh, you know, let, let's, let's use it in a more English term. We could use a bear. Because maybe you don't call too many people's, uh, people a lion, a lion in English. Um, but for example, you might say, I saw a bear in the woods. Or you could use a dog. I saw a dog in the woods. And then you describe someone as being, you know, he's a great big bear. Or you describe someone in a negative way. You know, saying this dog. In reality, do you intend that they are really a lion or a bear or a dog? No. What you intend by that is by the lion that they are brave, by the bear that they are big and strong, and by the dog that they are, you know, like a, a very strong curse of them that they are, you know, they, they are filthy or they are, you know, that they are... Um, lowly or something like that or that they are they do things that are that are that are bad or or unhealthy or unclean or whatever or an insult but you don't intend the original usage of the word okay so this is al-majaz and what the ashaira did is that they use this concept to say that you know when Allah said that he has a hand that's like saying that Muhammad is a lion he's not really a lion and Allah doesn't really have a hand actually what it means when you said Muhammad is a lion is that Muhammad is really brave and what you meant by saying that Allah has a hand is that Allah has power okay Al-Juwaini then goes on to talk about different types of Al-Majaz and he gives an ayah for each one. He talks about four, four types of Majaz and he gives an ayah for each one or he gives a, yeah, he gives more or less an ayah for each one. Number one, he talks about Al-Majaz Biziyada, adding an extra letter. It's not, like, it's not like the example of Muhammad is a lion, but just adding like an extra word or an extra letter into something which is not normally used for that reason. And he gives the example, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ And he says the kaf here is not normal usage. You normally say لَيْسَ مِثْلُهُ شَيْءٍ Laysa mithluhu shay. So why, you know, like Allah has said, Laysa kamithlihi shay, it's like, you know, it's a type of majaz. It's a type of using the calf in a way that it would not normally be used. The second one, and this is usually a favorite one they like, in Surah Yusuf, was Alil Qariya. Ask the village. 
they said, you can't ask a village. Try going into the middle of the village and saying, village, village, what happened in that place? So Allah when he said, ask the village, he is using al-majaz. And he, he's like saying, Muhammad is a lion. And the meaning of ask the village is ask the people of the village. Okay. Then he says, al-majazu bin naql, which is where one word comes to mean another thing. So he uses the example of the word al-ghaiṭ, which refers to a place of the earth which is depressed, a depression on the earth, like a, a ditch in the earth, which is called al-ghaiṭ. Then when people use that ditch to go to the toilet, they would name the stool that comes out of a person when they go to the toilet al-ghaiṭ. So the name for, and this is the example Joaini gives, and the name that is used for uh, what passes out of a person uh, in, in terms of the Qur'an and the Sunnah is Al-Ghaiṭ. Like this is the name for the, the, yani, the stool that passes out of a person when they go to the toilet. This is not its original usage. Its original usage of the word is a ditch in the earth. But since people use a ditch to go to the toilet in, they named the, like they said, it's min bab tasmiyat al-kharij, bismil makan. Naming what comes out by the name of the place that it comes out in. And the third example is the example of uh, what they call al-isti'ara. So using a verb for another and using a verb like borrowing a verb and using it in a non-standard way so that he gives the example of a wall that wanted to fall down so the wall didn't have any the wall didn't have any desire to fall to fall down the wall did not want to fall down it just but it, you're using a verb in a not in a non-standard way uh, because the wall was about to fall down, so you're, you're kind of using the verb in a non-standard non way. What is the response to all of this? First of all, there is no doubt whatsoever that Al-Majaz does not exist in the Qur'an. And to say that it exists in the Qur'an is to hold a very, very false and evil belief about the Qur'an. Because one of the things that everyone agrees about the majaz is majaz is not clear and it is not conclusive and it is open to denial. And this is their own opinion about the majaz, by the way, not ours. Yani their own opinion about al-majaz is that al-majaz is open to denial, it's open to criticism, it's open to interpretation. None of those things are true about the Qur'an. Go back to what Al-Juwaini himself said about what is reality, a real word with a real meaning, is using a word in a way that is or according to its proper terminology. And the simplest answer to Al-Majaz is simply to say all of the examples you, we, you gave Al-Juwaini, 
when you give them in context, it is clear that the word is being used in its appropriate, normal manner, in context. And I'll give you an example about that. When I say Muhammad is a lion, I am not changing the meaning of the word lion or like totally using it in a wrong way. The reality is in the language, the language allows me to use lion for a real lion and it allows me to use lion for someone who is brave. And the context defines the meaning of those terms. Really, Al-Majaz is based on the concept that every word has one definition and one definition only. And if you go out of that definition, you have broken the rules. But the reality is it doesn't. Context defines for you what words mean. It is not necessary to say that Allah has used a word in a, in a way that is not standard and has taken it away from its original meaning and has conveyed to us something that is not the right meaning for the word. That's not, that's not the case. Rather, the word lion has more than one usage. It is used for an animal and it's used for a brave human being, at least in Arabic. And when I say Muhammad is a lion, it's quite clear which definition I am referring to. Nobody thought that I'm referring to that Muhammad has his big teeth and big claws and he's running around after me, chasing me. Everybody knows that the, that the meaning of this is clear. Uh, let me give you an easier example with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. Allah's hand. So Al-Juwaini would have you believe that the hand is from Al-Majaz. In other words, it's an example of using a word that is not doesn't mean what the word actually means. Because Al-Juwaini says a hand uh, like the, it, it cannot mean what it means for Allah therefore it must be an example of majaz and what is meant by it is power we say to Al-Juwaini the Arabs use the word hand for a hand and they use the word hand for power both of those are haqiqa they are not majaz both of those are real but the context defines which one is which. And we say to him, find us one example in which the Arabs used the word hand to mean power and then said he has two powers. Never, not in the poetry of the Arabs from the beginning of written poetry until today, do we find the Arabs say, Yadani, two hands, and use it for power. Find me an example where the Arabs use the word hand, meaning power, and they said that it has fingers. His power has fingers. Doesn't exist. Find me an example where the Arabs mention and the Arab poets, the Jahiri, and the Arabs of the Fusaha, the people of, of, of fluent Arabic language, where they use the word hand and they say giving and taking away. Rather, his two hands are outstretched. 
Translate that to power. His two powers are outstretched. Doesn't make any sense. In reality, the context defines the meaning. And the context of the context of the word hand in the Quran and the Sunnah is not the context of power. It is the context of a real hand. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that his two hands are outstretched. And the Prophet ﷺ said, both of the hands of Allah are right hands. Both of his hands are right hands. And they're not a right and a left hand. Both of his hands are right hands. And the Prophet ﷺ said that the hearts of the servants are between the fingers of the most merciful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that Allah he grasps and he outstretches. And he grasps and he outstretches. يقبض, and he to, to grab hold of something and يبسط, to stretch something out. None of these are appropriate to use for the word yad meaning power. In fact, the word yad using power in the, in the language of the Arabs, in the poetry of the Arabs, is not normally attached to someone. They don't say yadihi or yaduhu, meaning his power. They say biyad or biaydi. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, biaydin. The heavens, we created them with aidin, not our hands. We created them with hands. Here you can say power. In this ayah, you can say power because it doesn't say his hand and it doesn't say his outstretched hand or his hand with fingers or his right hand or whatever. It says with hands, any be aiding, any with power. So we say that in reality, there isn't such a thing in the Quran as majaz. There are words, each word is used in its proper context. So when you say ask the village, all of us understand that that means, and this is normal Arabic, it is classical, fasih, pure Arabic, to say ask the village, meaning ask all of the people in the village. It's perfectly valid. It's not an example of incorrect usage that has been borrowed from one verb to another verb. It is just standard Arabic to say ask the village. And it's not an example of al-majaz. Now that leaves us with one issue, um, and because we are out of time anyways, but I, I have tried to answer the main issue. I mean, there are lots of side issues about al-majaz, but the main issue is we understand that in reality, this doesn't exist in the Quran. It can't exist in the Quran. Because for it to exist in the Quran must mean that the Quran is liable to doubt and critique. Because one of the things that they agree upon unanimously is that al-majaz is open to doubt and critique whenever it is used it can be denied it can be affirmed and you can choose to accept or reject that's not the case with the quran but what we said is that the quran uses words in different contexts and each context is appropriate and each sentence tells you the context of the word that is being used and that is really simple. And with that, you don't need to have al-majaz. Where the scholars of Ahl-Sunnah differed is 
does al-majaz exist at all or does it exist uh, in the normal speech of Arabs but not in the Quran the stronger position of Ahl sunnah is that al-majaz does not exist at all in Arabic it just doesn't exist it has no presence in the Arabic language at all rather saying Muhammadun Asad Muhammad is a lion is perfectly valid fluent classical eloquent Arabic and saying Asadun fil ghaba there is a lion in the forest is pure classical fluent eloquent Arabic this is valid and this is valid and neither of them are you know borrowing one term from the other However, some of the scholars of Ahl Sunnah, and we don't take a person out of Ahl Sunnah for this, said that Al Majaz does exist in the language of the Arabs, but it doesn't exist in the Quran. And so, what makes a person from Ahl Sunnah is to say that there is no Majaz in the Quran. As for saying that there is no Majaz in Arabic, this is the better opinion. Because, to be honest, once you start saying that it exists in the statement of the Arabs, but not in the Quran, you end up on very dodgy ground where like you're starting to say well yeah you know it doesn't exist in the Quran but it does exist in the poetry of the of the Arabs you put yourself in a very awkward position it's much easier just to simply say that it doesn't exist at all and that in reality every usage of that is 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 true is real but each one is contextual each one depends on the context that you use it. So when I describe a person as a lion, that has a meaning in Arabic. And when I describe a lion as a lion, that has a meaning in Arabic. And it's not borrowing one meaning from the other meaning. That basically concludes the most important issues relating to Al-Majaz. Uh, what I might do is post you some additional reading material because I don't want to do it like for ages. I want to get on to more like Usul, uh, inshallah. Like so, so we want to get onto some like real extracting of the rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah. But if you understand this, inshallah, it will it will help you a lot because it will it will stay with you for for the rest of your time in studying. And and basically, if you can get these issues locked down, you will not have anything to worry about when it comes to the uh, the Ash'aris and their belief and and their books and stuff. Because let's be honest you are going to come across their books, you are going to come across their scholars. If you study Islam, they are the closest of the sects to Ahl Sunnah, as Shaykh Islam Taymiyyah said. They are the closest of the different groups to Ahl Sunnah. So you, there is some overlap. I and mean, there are times when you will study books that are written by people who fell into that. There are times when you will come across their beliefs. So just getting these beliefs clear clarified now will help you that all the time we now go into the future we don't have to worry about explaining al-majaz and we don't have to worry about explaining their belief about al-kasb and qadr and we don't have to worry about explaining you know their belief about uh, these different issues of certainty and you know hadith al-ahad and all of this stuff we've kind of covered all of that which means that we've we are ready to actually accept the 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 usul al-fiqh that we need so in some ways all of this is an all of this has been an introduction to usul al-fiqh getting rid of all of the 
the stuff that they've added on there will still be more but you know getting rid of the majority of things that they've added on and getting ourselves prepared to really benefit from this knowledge and really uh, understand it well uh, to do that you have to be able to understand what these people believe because you will come across their books it's not like you know the books of the grave worshippers or the books of the Shia or whatever that you may never come across in your entire life and you'll never have to study these are books that you will have to study scholars you will have to benefit from so you need to get used to the idea of what they believe and how to get out of it but what I will do is I will give you some additional reading material inshallah on the topic of the Ash'aris and on the topic of Al-Majaz there's a very very nice website that summarizes uh, a lot about their beliefs and about how to respond to them so I will probably select some text from there and uh, and give it to you as a resource inshallah so that you can be totally confident on this and then we can move on to inshallah in the upcoming modules some proper uh, usul al-fiqh inshallah um, I can't remember whether there's any scheduled in the next module or whether it's scheduled in the module after that but inshallah there is coming up we will complete al-waraqat uh, before we finish the essentials inshallah but you know we had to we had to go through this stuff to really understand it well and again you know this critique for me has been very useful because it explains to you how you need to have your wits about you when you read these books you can't just read them like and let the sentences pass over your head because there's a lot of this stuff is related to what people believe and hopefully you've come across this principle that there is no such thing as a book that doesn't contain belief let's take it from me there is no such thing as a book that is devoid of a person's belief you know this guy is for example Shi'i but he wrote a book just about dua you know nothing else you know it's just duas from the Quran trust me there is no book that is devoid of belief every author inserts their belief into the book either by what they write or what they omit either by what they write or what they omit because they may be omitting sentences leaving sentences out leaving paragraphs out and what they leave out is because of what they believe or what they put in or their choice of words or their choice of definition or their choice of you know the order of the book whatever your belief governs everything that you do and you can find it in everything that you do so even a book that is not supposed to contain any of this belief when you dig deep enough it does contain elements of that belief in it and Allah knows best I have a series of appointments this morning so unfortunately I won't be able to do uh, Q&A very much this morning uh, I have appointments running from 8 o'clock until about 11 so I have to have to go and catch those inshallah uh, but inshallah ta'ala we'll, uh, we'll uh, reconvene after Eid bi'ithnillah ta'ala uh, and we'll see you guys then inshallah and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best wassalatu wassalam anabina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in please don't forget to submit your proposed assignment titles if you don't know what that is then you haven't been keeping up to date with your emails from Kalima because you have an assignment to do and you had a video explaining it and an email explaining it and it's on the Kalima's uh, essentials website too uh, so there's no excuses for the person who didn't know about it but there's a home assignment and you need to submit your title by I think the 15th if I'm not mistaken so you have very little time to submit your proposed uh, titles for your uh, research topic Jazakumullah khairan